0: We're actually going to talk about something this morning that I think you'll find to be surprising. Um, have you ever found yourself in a story that started out to be kind of a simple little story, maybe even a, a fun story, and all of a sudden you be- it, it becomes pretty significant, and you, all of a sudden you realize this is a bigger deal than I thought it would be? I, I, I'm, I'm thinking right now, I mean, there's so many examples of that in my life, but I, I'm thinking of a time one time when my son Pierce, he was kind of into skateboarding. And, uh, and I know a lot of you look at me as a professional athlete, and... Uh, and <laughs> But the truth is, as most of you really know, is that I'm not very coordinated and not very good at those sort of things. But I decided I was gonna go outside while my son was out playing with his skateboard in front of our house with all of his friends and go out and be the cool father. You know, the father that kind of engaged with his kid as he was playing, you know, the stuff that mattered to him. So I went out and I've told a couple of you this story in Sunday school before, but I went outside and and there he was, maybe 10, maybe eight or 10 friends out there and they're all doing, you know, skateboard things, you know ollies and flip jump things and stuff that I don't even really know what they mean. But I, I, was, I was the father that was interested. And so I, so I got out there and I was just standing there saying things like, you got some really massive air there. I don't even know what that means. But I said stuff like that because I was trying to be the father engaged. It was a So it started out as kind of a fun, whimsical story of, of just kind of engaging with your kid. All of a sudden, I decided that if I was really a cool father, I would—I wouldn't just stand there. I would participate somehow. And, and there was a skateboard right there next to me, and I was leaning against the car. And I thought, clearly, I'm not capable of riding the skateboard. But maybe I could just stand on it while I was—while I was watching them. And then they would look over and go, "There's one cool father hanging out with his kids to—to to engage." And so, so I, I kind of kicked the skateboard over. And, if, and some of you don't know anything about skateboards. I sure don't. But they have these little lips on each side that skateboarders will hit with their foot to, to, ma- to make the other side flip up so they can do all sorts of things with them. And, and so they have these little, these little lips. I'm sure there's a, a proper name for that, but just trust me. They're these little things. And so I, I move the skateboard, and, and I, I'm still leaning against the car, and I just step on the skateboard, and I'm just leaning against the car. And I'm thinking, I am a pretty cool father. So it starts out as just a simple little story it's kind of fun and whimsical, it doesn't have a lot of meaning to it at all, and then I decided a better father would maybe push on one of the sides and then catch it, you know, catch the lip as it went up and then kind of just lean back and forth, you know, just kind of after all, I'm standing there next to a car, what could go wrong? And, uh, and so, again, it started out as a simple, fun little story of a father trying to engage his kids, and um, well... It it, it was not a pretty story from that point on. I I lifted up this foot and the skateboard shot out from under me and it just went, and all of a sudden, my uh, lean 200 and some pound body, not very lean at all, flipped up and I'm, I'm about parallel with the earth at that point. Now, a good athlete would have known, well, just hit the asphalt, you know, just let your shoulder take the hit. But if you're not a good athlete, you think, I better drop, I better, you know, get my. I better protect myself with my wrist, and so, I, as I'm laying there, parallel to the earth, falling pretty quickly, I would say, some law of physics was taking place there, and I blocked my weight with my wrist. At which point, I broke my my arm terribly. I mean, that matter of fact, the surgeon said it was forked because it was completely broken, and because I was a father who didn't want to appear stupid, I jumped up real quick and said, because <laughs> they all noticed that I'm now laying on the ground, and I jumped up and said, I'm doing fine. And at that moment, I passed out. And so <laughs> um, I, I have now passed out on the ground. The kids scatter. They're running through the house yelling at Mona saying, you know, Pierce's dad's passed out, and, and he looks bad. And, you know, my arms, it's just a horrible scene. And so it started out as a, a simple, whimsical, fun story Ended up with months of working to get pens taken out and, and physical therapy and, and surgery and x-rays and all sorts of stuff. It was a simple story that as I lived it out, it became much, much more complex. Uh, I think of my daughter Kim is here, and I remember when we first met Kim and she came to our house, it started out as kind of a whimsical story. She was just gonna eat lunch with I mean dinner with us one Monday night. And and then I remember a few months later when we realized that this was not just merely a guest in our home, this would become our daughter. And all of a sudden, what well, shifted from, hey, let's have dinner, to, oh my goodness, our, our family just changed. There's so many stories I could tell you about when you misunderstand the importance of a real story. Now, I, I think, I think of Christmas, I think we've heard the story so many times, and we go, uh, and, and I've heard this story so many times in my life that sometimes um, I forget the essence of the story. Remember I, I, didn't, I, I remember years and years of hearing the Christmas story, I never heard the part we're going to preach on today. And maybe you'll say at the end of the sermon, well, there's a reason you never heard about it until for 10 or 15 years in your, in your Christian life is because people don't preach about that. People don't talk about that part of the story because it's just a beautiful Christmas story Don't ruin it with anything messy. Don't ruin it with anything ugly. Don't ruin it with anything tragic. However, if you don't understand the Christmas story in the context of suffering and loss and brokenness, you don't understand the gospel story. Jesus didn't come just to visit us. He came to save us. He He didn't just come because we needed to have good Christmas cards and hope and sing pretty songs. He came because we are broken, lost, blind slaves without hope if he doesn't come. And so when God told his story, he included an odd part that I never understood why was there. And I, I rarely ever heard it preached about. And when I tell you we're going to talk about it today, many of you will leave. Um, In your Bible, sometimes it's even listed under the heading of the killing of the infants. Now, some of you who just kind of casually heard the Christmas story over and over again might go, what's he talking about? Well, if you look, when Seth did his sermon this past week on on Christmas Eve, he told the story of the Magi coming. He told the story that's found in Matthew in the story in Matthew, it's assumed that the readers kind of knew the story of Luke and they knew about the, the, the shepherds, but they, but they didn't know in, in, in Luke and Mark, they didn't have the story of the Magi. And so Matthew includes a different story to complete the story of, the, of, of Christmas. And he tells a story that includes a false king trying to thwart... God's plan with the real legitimate king with the tragedy of children being killed. Um, and you think, oh, uh, God rest you, Mary, gentlemen. Oh my goodness, how, how do we get back to a happy Christmas story? Well, I think it would be important for us to spend just a few minutes this day after Christmas to think together about why God might include such a story of sorrow connected to such a story of glory. And I think if you'll understand that, you'll understand why his story of glory connects with your story of struggle. By the way, for some of you, Christmas is a difficult time. For some of you, it's it's a reminder of the people that weren't there this year, the empty seats at the table. For some of you, it was a reminder of the people that were lost this year. For some of you, Christmas has been a difficult season. And to be honest with you, and I love Christmas, but almost every Christmas evening, after the kids are gone, and you're cleaning the dishes, almost every year, I'm slightly disappointed. I just slightly. I'm thinking about what I didn't get, or I look on Facebook and see everybody else's family looks pretty amazing, and, and mine's amazing, but not near that amazing. Um, <laughs> And, and you think about what you got and what you didn't get and what other people got and what you didn't get. And you think about all these months waiting up for for Christmas and they just kind of go, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of like it. I mean, uh, I, I understand it's about Jesus. And, uh, but there's a little bit of sadness in it. And so if that's you, if I'm not the only person who sometimes feels that slightly blue Christmas, I think we can find hope and solace in the real story of Christmas and the real hope that we find in a story that is beautiful but is also interlaced with sorrow and struggle. So before we look at his word together, before we talk about him, let's talk to him. Let's pray together this morning. Father, I thank you. Um, I thank you for Christmas. Most of all, I thank you that it celebrates your coming to this earth and that you did not abandon us. That we weren't left to our own to figure this all out. We can't fix we can't fix what's broken in us. So Father, we do thank you for this season. But more than this season, we thank you for what it means and who you are. Father, you know every person in this room. You know the people that cried yesterday because it wasn't what they hoped for. You know the people that were disappointed. You know the people that are angry. You know the people that are celebrating. You know every person in this room. You know every tear, every loss, every laugh, every joy. No one in here is here by accident. And no one is here that you don't know. And so would you meet us here this morning? Would you change us because we looked at your word together and ask your spirit to come and teach us? Father, for the people in the room that are too comfortable, would you use our time together to disrupt them? For those that are disrupted, would you use this time to comfort and would you use it to equip us all for your glory and your great purposes? We pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. This past week, Seth spoke uh, eloquently on Christmas Eve about the, the story in Matthew. And I'm gonna pick up that story and, and I'm gonna to go to the next section of the story, but just to, just to follow with what Seth told you, if you remember, they, we, always, we sing, we three kings. It's not three kings, it's three magi. Well, and we don't know that it was three. And we know that it wasn't right when Jesus was born for a couple of reasons. One reason we know that is because they lived in a home, not in a stable. Second reason we know that is that when Jesus was taken to the temple for it to be blessed, they had to use pigeons, which would have been uh, because they were too poor. And if wise men had just come in with gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they wouldn't have had to go with the, the sacrifices of poppers with their, with their son to the temple. And we know that because of this story we're about to read, that Herod put this time period in, in somewhere between one to two years after Jesus was born. But this is the story that Seth spoke of. And, uh, and then we're going to follow that through. So let me just pick up, let me start where Seth started, and then just move past that for just a few minutes. It starts in Matthew 2. And would you stand while we read the Word of God together? If, if you can stand, that'd be great. Let me read to you. I'm going to start in the beginning of chapter 2. And and then we'll pick up in the passage. We're going to look at the text in just a few minutes. It says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired to them, where this Christ would be born. And they told him, and you, O Bethlehem, is the land of Judea, and by no means least among the rulers of Judea, and and from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, ascertained when the time they first saw the star appear, and he said to them, go to Bethlehem, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, and I too may come worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until they came to rest over a place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. Now, here's the text we're going to look at together. So listen closely. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, Rise, take the child, his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and they departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. That was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, listen to this. This is all my years of, of growing up and hearing the Christmas story. Nobody ever talked about this. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region that were two years old or under according to the time that they had ascertained from the wise men. Thus was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice heard from Ron, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. May God bless the reading of his holy word. You can be seated. Well, a quick little history lesson uh, that would be helpful, I think, to understand this passage first of all, there are are five Herods in the New Testament. This is the first Herod. This is often called Herod the Great. Some people called him in history Herod the Terrible, and there's a reason he was called Herod the Terrible. He was not a legitimate king. His lineage did not make him uh, a legitimate king. It was because of his deceptive nature and the way that he kind of played politics that kept him in power. And so he was not a legitimate king by, by birthright. And so, uh, he was, as time went on, he would get depressed and he would, uh, he would show his authority uh, and sometimes do great projects around the, around the, the people. And then he would become depressed again and paranoid and often uh, retaliate on people. He actually had his wife killed, one of his wives killed, and he had two of his children killed. He was a man afraid he would lose power because he was not a legitimate king. Someone afraid they would lose power because they weren't the legitimate king. Well, he finds out that a legitimate king is born, and he's terrified. So this paranoid man finds out when when the wise men don't come back, he gets the people together. And By the way, between Jerusalem and Bethlehem is about five miles. It's incredibly ironic that none of the Pharisees, and Seth brought this out the other day, that none of the Pharisees and Sadducees, none of the religious leaders of the day, including Herod himself, wouldn't make a five-mile trip to find out about the real legitimate king. But once he realized he'd been tricked, he said, I'm going to take care of business. And he he devised an evil plot to kill all the children under two years old, so that no, that, that this legitimate king would be thwarted and would not live. Now, this is a tragic story. Now, What's interesting is historians do not record this. As a matter of fact, some critics of the Bible will suggest to you that this didn't really take place. It's folklore because it didn't make history. But whereas Herod's death just a few years later does make history, why does Josephus not mention the killing of these children when, when his why does the Bible include it but the history books don't? And I would suggest to you a couple of things. First of all, uh, look, you, you need to understand the numbers, uh, it's an incredible tragedy. It's a Horrible tragedy. But in a time where infant mortality would be an issue, uh, and there's probably uh, of the, the, the number of families living in Bethlehem, maybe about 300 once the census was done, you would have had between 12 and 30 children born in that two year period of time. Half of those would have been boys. So between six to 15 children would have been in that age group that would have been killed. Now that's an incredible tragedy. But in the history, historians of the day wouldn't have thought the death of six to 15 children in an insignificant town made it to history. But God would not ignore such an important loss. So God includes it in the story. He includes it because God takes seriously sorrow, pain, and suffering. And so. Woven into the story of glory, the story of beauty, God doesn't ignore the incredible tragedy of of the evil one, the illegitimate king, trying to destroy the story of glory. He includes the sorrow of what the evil one cost in the middle of the story of glory. So it's a tragic story of the loss of between six to maybe up to 20 infants. Uh, the picture you'll see up on the screen, it's a famous, uh, famous, beautiful picture from, uh, from France years and years ago from, the, from some of the great, and, and it's a picture of, the, uh, of, of a mother. Look at the look on her face as she's looking out. As she's holding her baby uh, in the tragedy, and then you see a mother, another mother running with her children and being chased by a, by a soldier. Uh, you can only imagine the horror of that day. As Herod, an illegitimate king, trying to hold on to his power, did everything in his power to to destroy the legitimate king and the hope of glory. And that's, that's the picture you have that takes place in the Gospels. So I would like us to think together for just a minute, why would God include this story in the middle of the Christmas story? First of all, I would just suggest to you, just in general, that the Christmas story outside of the context of suffering and loss is simply a nice little story. If you don't understand that this is not a nice story of a manger and shepherds, it is a story of a God coming into a broken, dying world that has no hope without it. And, And that sorrow and glory are tied together always. I used to believe I should spend my life with life's either mountaintops or valleys, and my job was to avoid the valleys and live on the mountaintops. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are invited into God's glory and into his suffering, that suffering and glory are connected together. Not at the end of the story, but in the middle of the story it is. And so in this story, one of the most beautiful stories, all of creation. The story of the incarnation. The story of God becomes flesh and dwells among us. There's also tragedy interwoven in the story. Because Jesus did not come to a pretty good world that needs encouragement. Jesus didn't come to say you're good people, let's get better. He came to a dying world to provide hope. To a hopeless situation. So it's not just a little story It needed to include sorrow so that you would understand the seriousness of what he was doing when he came. So the first thing I would suggest to you, why would God, and there's probably a hundred reasons God put this in the story. And I'm just going to give you four of what I've thought as I've wrestled with it. You should wrestle with this as well. Why would God include this in the story? And why we shouldn't beg away from this part of the story? Because I think it teaches us much about who we are and what God wants to do in us. First thing I would suggest, it reminds us that our faith and our life view is not a simple philosophy. But it's a matter of life and death. What we believe is not supposed to just make us good people better. The gospel. The gospel is a story of life and death. I remember one time, you know, I'm a psychologist by trade, and I I deal with counseling a lot. And I remember getting a phone call one time from a person that started out just as a casual conversation. And then somewhere in the middle of the conversation, I realized this person had a gun, and they were considering killing themselves. And all of a sudden, this conversation where I'm saying things like, you know, I'm trying to kind of get off the phone because they're interrupting my, my time. All of a sudden, this conversation went from a casual conversation to a conversation that was, that was dripping with life and death. And the gospel story is not a Christmas card. It's a story of life and death. Think of the visceral language God uses in the Bible to describe us. In the Bible, he says that we're blind, we're slaves, we're crippled. The Bible uses visceral language to describe us. That We're dead to our sins. The wages of sin is death. We are dead. We are hopeless. We have nothing unless Christ doesn't intervene. And so the first thing I would suggest, the reason God includes this horrific story in the midst of a beautiful story is because he wants you to know that the gospel story is not just a beautiful story. It is a story of life and death second thing I would suggest to you, that God includes this in his story not just because our Christian life is not a philosophy to follow or ideas to hold on to, but it's really a matter of life and death. The second thing, it reminds us there's an enemy to God's good story of glory. Every person in this room is in a story war. A war between the lies of who, you, who Satan says you are and the truth of who God says you are as his child. Satan tells me I'm a has-been, or not a has-been, I'm a never-been. Satan says it's been too late. He says that I've messed up too much. Satan says I'm just a fake. Satan says, he says so much, and he writes a story, and he tells me this didn't matter, and that doesn't matter. What does he tell you? When Satan picks up his pen and he writes the story of your life, what does he say to you? Oh, you're worthless, you don't matter, what you do doesn't matter, How, you'll be forgotten, You don't matter. And then God picks up the pen. And he writes a story that says, you matter because you're my child. What you do matters because it echoes into eternity. You see, you're in a story war. And this, this epic story of redemption is a story war. With a legitimate king who's redeeming creation back to himself in an illegitimate false king with no real power that's just trying to, to mess up as much as he can before he loses the battle. And that's the story that you see here. You see God telling the story of him coming into creation. And you see Herod telling a different story with Satan's help. I'm going to I'm going to destroy that story of redemption. I'm going to destroy that story of hope. I'm going to destroy it. There's a story war taking place. Now, always be aware that the uh, the sovereign God of the universe will not be thwarted. And ultimately, he finishes the story. He's already written the end. But that doesn't mean the evil one doesn't pick up his pen and write over and over again, you don't matter. What you do doesn't matter. Who you are doesn't matter. Oh, this, this is just philosophy. The evil one, he's an illegitimate king of this earth. And he's trying to destroy the legitimate king's unthwartable plan to redeem and restore creation unto himself. So the second reason I would suggest that this story is included in the, in the Christmas story is it reminds us that there's an enemy to God's story and that we're in a story war. Third, also similar to that, is it reminds us that God's the author that will not be thwarted by the work of man. Note God's provision throughout this story. How could a poor couple go all the way to Egypt? How could a couple go all the way to Egypt? They didn't have enough money to... Well, it just so happens that that Magi came and gave them money. It's 430 miles from Bethlehem to Egypt. Not a short distance by donkey. It's not a short distance by car. How's a poor couple... Who couldn't even afford to take their child for the proper blessing in the temple, how are they going to go 400 and some miles unless, some way, God, divinely in the middle of a story that's trying to be thwarted by the evil one, provides for them? He does through the wise men. And now they have resources to go. Notice that God's story of glory will not be thwarted by the evil one, uh, by, his, by the evil's purposes. Fourth, I would suggest to you that this is one of the most beautiful pictures in, in all of the Bible of one of the most important theological concepts you'll ever get. Now, here's what theologians say. If theologians like to say stuff that nobody else understands so everybody thinks they're really smart, and they are smart, they're much smarter than me, but they'll sometimes say something like, the already, but not yet but the very soon. And then they'll just walk away and you'll go, what does that mean? And they go, it's an important theological concept. You need to understand it. And then they'll walk away because that's what a good, really smart person does. And you just kind of say, the already, but not yet. Very soon. What does that mean? Well, it's really a pretty simple concept. It's the idea that because of the work of Christ, you've been declared righteous. Matter of fact, we'll talk about all of the things that are already done to you in just a moment because of the work of Christ. But, so you live in the kingdom of God now, but is the kingdom of God fully revealed now or fully lived out now? No. Kind of like when you got married and they said, the two shall become one. Did you become one? Yes, you did. God declared the two shall become one. You declared one. Are you one? Not yet, really. You'll spend the rest of your life figuring out oneness. And so it's the already. You're one. Not yet. But someday. soon. So where is that picture drawn here? Jesus was just born. The Savior of the world is on the planet already. The already. There were shepherds that saw the glory of God and came and saw him. The Savior has arrived. He is already there. But not yet. There is still evil. There's an evil one with a pen trying to destroy the hope of glory. But someday, soon, You'll have the full glory. And that's the picture you have in this in this picture. You have the already, Jesus is born, the not yet, evil is still in the story, but very soon. What, what is the already well? Uh, what's already happened because of your position in Christ? You're already adopted in Christ, Romans 8 15. You're already redeemed in Christ, Ephesians 1:7. You're already sanctified in Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians 1-2 uh, and 1 Thessalonians 5-23 and 24. You're already saved in Christ, Ephesians 2-8. You're already raised with Christ, Ephesians 2-6 and 1 Corinthians 15-52. Um, but then it says, uh, like in, in, in Ephesians, it says we're raised with Christ, but then in Corinthians it says we're not yet raised, which is true. Both are true. Because it's the already Not yet, but very soon. Jesus came, the Savior of the world came already. Evil is still writing his pen, trying to destroy the story of glory. So it's not yet fully realized, but it will be. See, all throughout scripture, there's a, both it's historically true and metaphorically true, that God's people often lived in exile, in a tension between what they were made for and where they live. And that is the truth of all of us that know Jesus Christ. We live in the tension between we are saved and the already. We are made for glory. We are a part of a heavenly kingdom living on earth. We're part of a, a secret army taking the earth back for Christ. But it's not yet done. Though all has been completed on the cross, the actuality of it's not yet done, soon it will. So you have in this tragic story, historians don't believe the story, God included this story because sorrow and struggling. He knows every tear you shed. He included this story not only to tell you that, not only to tell you that He is um, that, that what we believe is not philosophy. It's a matter of life and death. Not only that, it's that there's an enemy to our story. We're in a story where God is telling a grand story of glory, redemption, and restoration. Not only that, it reminds us that the author of this this grand story of glory will not be thwarted. And lastly, it reminds us that, that we live in a tension between the already, not yet, but very soon. This year, as you go from Christmas to New Year's, know that you are in A grand, grand story. It's not a little story. It's not a friendly story. It's not just a whimsical story. It's an amazing story of life and death. Of God redeeming creation back home to himself. And he gives you the power. Because he lives in you. Gives you the authority. Because of who he is. Who you belong to. To live in the tension. Between the already, but soon, the not yet. As you go this year, live with great courage. Live with great hope. Because it is life and death. You've been given life in Christ. Because the author of this story will not be thwarted. And he is telling a good story of glory. And his story wins not the evil one story. And remember, you've been given the ability and the power to live in the tension of this world between the already the not yet and the soon to be.